Have you ever slowed down and really considered the content of the gospel message? (laughs) I mean, honestly. I mean, we come in here, we put on our happy, smiley faces, and we all sing songs, and da-da-da-da-da. But have you really slowed down and considered the content of the message of the gospel? That a five foot five, or maybe five foot three, that's the average height of Jewish men in that day, a five foot three itinerant preacher from a tiny sliver of land in the Middle East claimed to be God in the flesh. And he went around doing good deeds, miraculous works of power for three and a half years. And everybody knew it, everybody recognized it. And yet, those who went to rabbinical schools, those who were trained in theology, they rejected him. And after, again, three, three and a half years, he dies a criminal death. He dies the death of a criminal at the hands of the Romans, at the insistence of Israel's religious leadership. And then his disciples claim that after three days, he all of a sudden comes back from death. He all of a sudden rises from the dead and he went around for the next 40 days just showing up in rooms without being invited, just popped into rooms and started teaching about the kingdom of God, just showing up everywhere and telling anyone and everyone that they can be forgiven, their sins can be forgiven, and they can be reconciled to God if they come to him in repentant faith. And then what his disciples tell us is that he physically ascended where now, as a resurrected human, he determines the destiny of every soul in history. Have you thought about that? Because you've got to admit, that is an audacious claim. Is it not? I mean, is there anything more audacious than the message of the gospel? And you can see why. When some people hear this news, it hits them sideways. Right? Maybe the first time you heard the message of the gospel, it hit you sideways, and you were skeptical of it. I know that was the case for me. The first time I heard it, I thought, (laughs) yeah, right. I mean, honestly, come on, seriously. And yet for others, when they heard the message of the gospel, it resonates within their soul. And rather than being skeptical, finding it skeptical, they find it to be strangely true probably much in the same way that you did over time. You found it to be strangely true. Maybe at first you were skeptical of it, but then the more you you meditated upon it, the more you checked it out, the more you thought about it, you found it to be strangely true. And individual lives were transformed. And whole communities sprang to life. These whole communities that were centered on the person and the work and the message of Jesus Christ. And 2,000 years later, 2,000 years later, this message continues to shape, shape lives. Well, what in the world accounts for this? Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Well, he goes on. He says, because it's the power of God for salvation. The power. The enabling power of God for, for salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then to the Gentiles. Paul says wherever the message of the cross goes, it has its own power 
its own power to reconcile sinners to a holy God. We just sang holy, holy, holy. It has the power to reconcile sinners to a holy God, to transform broken lives, to give birth to whole new communities that are centered on and find their identity in his grace and want to continue with his mission. And this reality is what has taken place in the Corinthian church. It's what's taken place in Corinth under Paul's ministry. Are you guys in? I told you to go to 1 Corinthians, right? Okay, good. Uh, This is what's taken place under Paul's ministry. As he proclaimed the gospel, many Corinthians of many different backgrounds and ethnicities were converted. Remember, a whole bunch of different backgrounds, all sorts of different ethnicities because Corinth was this international hub. Everybody moved to Corinth to do business there. And so you got people moving from all sorts of nations to, to go to Corinth. And while they're there and they heard the message of the gospel that Paul preached, they were converted to the message. And this new, uh, this new community of Christians springs up. And they started so strong in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why in verses 1 through 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul commends them. He says, you're walking in the grace of the Lord. And then what happens in verses 10 through 17, he has to correct them. Because though they had started off strong in the grace of the Lord, they had gone sideways. And they started breaking up. Uh, Well, what they actually started doing is they started boasting in the wisdom of particular leaders, particular human leaders. They were boasting in the wisdom of human leaders. And then they were breaking up into factions over which leader they liked best. So instead of focusing on Christ and his mercy and his grace, they said, well, this guy has the wisdom. We need to follow him. Some said, we really like Paul. We were saved under Paul's ministry. And so Paul's the guy we're going to listen to. We're going to align ourselves with Paul. Others said, well, we like Apollos. He is, he's the hip new thing, and he's really eloquent and mighty in the scripture, so we like Apollos. Uh, Another group said, we like Peter. Peter's a Jewish guy, and we're Jewish. So we want to listen to Peter. Peter has the wisdom. Other group, the fourth group said, we're of Christ. They're, They're super spiritual the super elite, who don't actually think they need any type of human leader, um, not realizing that Christ is the head of the church and he appointed shepherds and teachers for the building up of the body of Christ and the work of the ministry. And so the Christians in Corinth, what they were doing is they were boasting in and breaking off into little factions, arguing with one another based on their personal preferences about which leader they thought had the most wisdom. They were doing, essentially... They were taking their cues from the surrounding culture. Because remember, the Corinthians, they loved their orators. And they would align themselves in their broader culture. They would align themselves with with a particular orator who they thought spoke the best and had the most wisdom, who, who who they were most impressed by, who had the most eloquence and the the most wisdom. And by the way, we do the same thing. Uh, Some of you watch Fox News. Because they have somebody who has, you you like a certain style. Some of you watch another news station and they they hook you and they keep you because they have a certain style to it. And so we do the same thing. And so Paul, what he does in, in verses 10 through 17, we looked at this last week, he appeals for unity because they're one in Christ. He says, why are you breaking up over, why are you breaking into factions over human leaders when you've been saved by Christ? Why are you doing this? Why are you boasting in human leadership? Why are you breaking up in the little, in the little factions? 
And now, what's going to happen in verses 10 through 25 in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? Paul's going to say this. He's going to say, it's not the wisdom of men, but the wisdom of God, which which culminates in the cross of Christ that saves you. It's not the wisdom of men, but it's the wisdom of God that culminates in the cross of Christ that saves you. So why are you boasting in humans and why are you breaking up into factions? See, what he's going to do is he's going to cut out from uh, he's going to uh, cut out the legs he's going to cut the legs out from underneath of why they were boasting what they were boasting in this this worldly wisdom and why are they breaking up into all these different factions and he'll do this by reminding them and by reminding us and we need to be reminded of the message of the gospel and he'll say two things about the message of the gospel. And this is the outline, by the way. So if you're a note taker, you'll want to take notes. Paul's going to say two things about the message of the gospel. Here's the first thing he's going to say. This is in verses 18 through 25. He's going to say the message of the gospel is a countercultural proclamation of God. The message of the gospel is a countercultural proclamation of God. That's in verses 18 through 25. It's a countercultural proclamation of God, and we'll see why in a moment. And then in verses 26 through 31, he's going to say this. The message of the gospel, it produces a multicultural people of God. So first, it's a message, it's a countercultural proclamation of God, which produces a multicultural people of God. And these two realities, now, now remember what he's doing. He's, he's trying to get them to understand the boasting in human leaders and the breaking up into factions. He's saying this, this, this is the antidote to that. These two realities will cause the Corinthians and us to only boast in the Lord and to be deep, deeply united with one another. That's his aim. Actually, you can see it. Look at verse 31 in chapter 1. He says, so as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's his aim. He's going to drive everything to right there. I don't want you boasting in human leaders. I don't want you breaking up into factions saying, well, we got it right. This guy's got it wrong. He says, the only place you should be boasting in is the grace of the Lord given to you. That's the only, the only ground for boasting. So let's see how he does it. Beginning in verse uh, 18. Now remember, um, remember in, in verse 17, Paul has, which is this transitional verse, um, what he's saying is that, which he, that when he preached the gospel in Corinth, he didn't do it with eloquent wisdom. He didn't do it with impressive words because he didn't want the cross of Christ to be emptied of its power. He didn't want people to rest their faith in the eloquence of a man, but in the power of the gospel. And now he picks up that theme in verses 18 through 25 and he carries it forward. Look at what he says. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, he quotes Isaiah, he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. 
It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. He says, you're not going to get there through wisdom. And remember, the Corinthians loved wisdom. And he says, no, you're not going to find God through wisdom. He says, you're not going to get him through wisdom. It it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, we'll talk about that in a minute. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Okay, so notice what he says here. First thing he says, that the message of the gospel is a counter-cultural proclamation of God. Um, It's a counter-cultural proclamation of God. By the way, you see the phrase there, the word of the cross? You guys see that phrase there in verse 18? the word of the cross, and some of your, if you're in the NIV, it'll, it'll say the message of the cross. That's shorthand for the whole cross event, right? He's not just talking about the cross itself. He's talking about the whole cross event. And sometimes people will leave, leave me belligerent notes um, telling me that the cross doesn't save people. It's the blood of Christ that saves people. Thank you very much. I was not aware of that. Um, but you got to understand when Paul uses the word of the cross what he's saying is he's taking a part of the he's taking a part of the whole event and he's saying the whole cross event the cross is what saves people uh, so when he says the word of the cross he's ta- again he's talking about the whole cross event so Jesus' substitutionary death where his blood was spilt for the forgiveness of sins his physical uh, burial, real burial, his bodily resurrection, which vindicates him as the Messiah. So when he says the word of the cross, he's talking the whole gospel message. And Paul says, this is a countercultural proclamation. Well, why? Because it cuts to the heart of human pride. It cuts to the heart of human ingenuity. Because what the gospel says is that humanity is so sinful and so broken, you can't find your way to God through reason. Nor can you work your way to God through religion. Humanity is so broken, it's so jacked up, so sinful, that you're not going to be able to reason your way to God, nor can you work your way to God through religion. So he can't be found through reason nor religion. Well, then how will he be found? Only if he reveals himself to you through the preaching of the gospel. Only if his love is revealed to you through the cross of Christ, which gets proclaimed by his people. Look at verse 21. He says, For since in, now this is so shocking, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So in the wisdom of God, salvation isn't based 
upon human intelligence, human intellect, or religious discipline. Because if it's based upon either one of those things, if it's based upon human reason or religious effort, then it's based on your merit. And you know what that'll do? That'll fill you with pride. And you'll have every reason to boast, either in yourself or in some religious system or in some leader. So in the wisdom of God, salvation, it doesn't come by human wisdom. It doesn't come by moral effort. But through the revelation of God's love, through the preaching of the gospel, telling about the cross of Christ. So it's a countercultural proclamation. And, and Paul says some people think it's flat out stupid. Some people, when they hear the message of the gospel, they think it's flat out stupid. Look at verse 18. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's straight foolishness. So some hear the message of the gospel and they'll say something along the lines of, you mean to tell me that one man could die on a piece of wood on a nondescript hill in a nondescript part of the world and that person determines the destiny of every person who has ever lived? That's what you're telling me? And they'll say, that's utter foolishness. And my assumption is, if you've told the gospel message to anybody at any point in your life, you've probably had somebody respond in that way. Is that true? Yeah. Um, and so some hear the message of the gospel and they think it's stupid. While others, when they hear the message of the gospel, they'll be scandalized by it. Look, at verse, look again at verse 21. He says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased... It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And you got to remember, throughout Jesus' ministry, these, the unbelieving Jews, they would continually come to Jesus. The Jews who didn't recognize Jesus' power as the, Messiah, as the Messiah, in spite of his countless miracles, his countless works of power, and the religious leaders, they taunted him for more. More miraculous signs in order for them to see if he had the requisite power to be their expected deliverer. And they thought that they could sit in judgment of, of Christ. And do you remember what Jesus told them? He said, you'll get no sign but the sign of Jonah. You'll get no sign but the sign of Jonah, meaning that just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and then came up out of it the other side, so Jesus is going to be in the belly of the earth for three days. And then he's going to come back out of it and he's going to be vindicated as the Messiah, as the King. And so verse 23, he says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And the phrase stumbling block there, it's the Greek word scandalon. It's where we get our word scandal from. Well, why would the unbelieving Jews be scandalized by the message of the cross? Here's why. It's because they were looking for a Messiah who would defeat their enemies militarily. They were looking for a king who would deliver them from their enemies militarily, who would lead them really in the ways of David. And they had no category, absolutely no category for a suffering Messiah. They couldn't wrap their minds around that. The Messiah, in their mind, would win by strength. He would win by might. And Jesus, he turns that on its head, and he defeats humanity's greatest enemies, Satan, sin, and death. But he doesn't do it through military might. He does it through suffering. He does it through meekness and death. So that's one reason. But the other reason, of course, is because in Deuteronomy 21, 
Deuteronomy 21, 23, we're told, cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. And so they would say, when they heard, when the message of the gospel went to the Jews, that Jesus died upon a cross, they would say, well, how could someone under the curse of God actually be the Messiah? How could, he actually, how could someone who's cursed by God actually be the Messiah? I'll tell you how. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, only if he's absorbing the curse of the law on your behalf. If he's absorbing the curse of the law on your behalf and he drains of it all of its power and then he comes up out of it on the other side, vindicated as the king, and he gives to anyone and everyone who comes to him in repentant faith new life, that's how he does it. And this is exactly what Paul and the other apostles preached. So the message of the gospel, think about it though, it is a counter-cultural proclamation of God. It cuts through the straight, of, straight to the heart of human pride. And some thought that it was sheer stupidity. And others were scandalized by it. By the way, if you're here this morning and you're skeptical of the message of the gospel, I totally get that. Um, let me just say you're in a good spot. Um, because most of us in this room at one time or another was skeptical of the message of the gospel. So you're in a good spot, but stick with us um, because Paul will address that more in a moment. But it is a countercultural proclamation. Some thought it was, it was sheer stupidity. Others thought, others were scandalized by it, but, and the, by the way, the people who do that, who are scandalized by it and who think of it as sheer stupidity, note in verse 18 it says they're perishing. They are perishing. By rejecting the word of the cross, they are headlong into an eternal plunge into hates and a hopeless destiny of death. He says, so you got to think about the cross. You need to take your skepticism out and examine it and say, why am I really skeptical of this? But then he also says there's another group. Look at verse 18 again. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us. Now, remember, he's writing this to the Corinthians. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Skip down to verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So while one group thinks it's the message of the cross is sheer stupidity, another group scandalized by it, there's another group. There's a third group who are being saved by it. Those who are called, and note that, that Paul says you're called, you're summoned. Those who are called have come to see and believe and experience that in the crucified and the risen Christ, God's supreme power is being unleashed to transform, to forgive, and to create a people that will be his forever. So the message of the gospel is God's wisdom at work, changing hearts, transforming lives, bringing new communities into being. The gospel has a power all its own to do this, and it's none of it's of our, our, none of, it's of our doing. It's not our power, it's not our wisdom that brought this about, it's the Lord's. You see how this, this message strips us of human pride? Are you guys with me still? You guys aren't going to sleep, are you? Okay. It strips us of pride. 
He says, none of this is of your own doing. You're called into this. So after speaking of these groups, Paul, he, he uh, concludes, look at verse 25. Concludes this section. He says, for the foolishness of God, that which they consider foolishness, is wiser than men. And what they consider the weakness of God is stronger than men. He's saying the message of the cross, that which they consider the foolishness of God, is wiser than the wisest thing humanity individually and collectively has ever done. And that which they consider the weakness of God is stronger individually and collectively than anything humanity has done. Because it actually has the power to bring sinners to God. That, what God has done in Christ crucified, is a direct contradiction to human ideas of wisdom and power. And yet, it's achieved what human wisdom and human power could never do. Reconciliation to God. A community a people that are marked not by the wisdom of the world, but by the wisdom of the cross. So now what Paul's going to say in verses 26 through 31, he's going to say, he's going to say this countercultural proclamation of God, the message of the cross, what it does is it will produce a multicultural people of God who are marked by humility rather than hubris. Humility rather than hubris. And I gotta tell you, one of the most attractive things in people is humility rather than hubris. Is that not true? And he says, when the gospel, when, when somebody really understands the gospel, it will produce a community of people who are marked by humility rather than hubris. And it'll be a multicultural community. Well, why will, why will that be the case? Because in God's great design, it pleased him, verse 21, it pleased him to call all types of people, both the religious, so the Jews, and the irreligious, the Gentiles, the nations. He calls all sorts of people regardless of their race, regardless of their education, regardless of their wealth, regardless of their family pedigree, regardless of their socioeconomic backgrounds. And what this will do is it will produce a multicultural people of God who, again, are marked by humility rather than Hubris. Well, let's see how Paul says it. Look at verse 26. He says, for consider your calling. Now note, the, he says it again. Verse 24, he says, but to those who are called. And now he says, now consider your calling, brothers. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of God, he says, because of, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So what he's saying here is he's, he's talking to the Corinthians and he's saying to them and to us, think about what you were when you were called. So right before you were converted to Christ is what he's saying. 
uh, right before you were converted to the message of the, great, uh, the message of the cross, he says, not many of you were wise by worldly standards. So what's he getting at? I mean, does he just get pleasure out of calling us stupid? What's he saying? He's saying, no, it wasn't because, he says, he's saying you're not saved because you had more insight than others. He's saying you're not saved because you have more understanding than others. And then he goes on, he says, not many of you were powerful. So it's not because they were more capable than others that they're saved. Not many of you were of noble birth. So it's not because you had the right family pedigree. It's not because you came from the right family, a religious family. Well, if it's not those things, that if, it's, if those aren't the reasons that we're saved, then what in the world is it? How can they, how can anybody become a Christian? Well, look at verse 30. Because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. It's because of God's choice, not your choice, that you're in Christ Jesus. And this is the doctrine of election. And it sets off all sorts of arguments, but get over the arguments for now. What Paul's saying is, it's God's choice, not yours, as the basis for the reason why you're in Christ Jesus. It's God's determinative choice, not yours, that determines if you're in Christ. Paul says the reason that you're a Christian is not because you're wiser than other people. It's not because you're more capable than other people. It's not because you come from a better family than other people. It's not because of any of those things. None of those things. The reason you're a Christian, Paul's saying to them and to us, the reason that you're a Christian, the reason you've received Christ's love while others haven't, has nothing to do with you at all. Nothing to do with you. And I know that hits people sideways. When anytime the doctrine of election comes up, it hits people sideways. But if this is the first time you're thinking about it, stick with me for a little bit. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in a sermon years ago, he brilliantly captures this. He says this, because he knows the doctrine of election hits people sideways and they kind of bristle at the idea. But Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, people tend to think if you reject, people tend to think if you reject the doctrine of election, you're in a happy position. If you say, I don't believe I'm a Christian, if you, let me say that again. If you say, I don't believe I'm a Christian because God elects, I believe I'm a Christian because I am free and it depends on my choice and my decision. But wait a minute, Lloyd-Jones says, let me ask you where you are if you reject this doctrine. Take Acts 28, 24, for example, where we're told that Paul preached the message of the gospel and some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. And Lloyd-Jones said, why do some believe and some believe not? You might say, well, because of free will. Some chose and some did not. Very well, very well, Lloyd-Jones says. But let me ask you, why did some choose and some did not? Oh, you say, well, some saw it this way while others saw it that way. Yes, okay, very, very well, but Why? Why did some see it this way? And why did some see it that way? Well, because some admitted their sins and some, some did not. Ah, okay, very well, Lord Jones said. But why, why did some admit their sins and others did not? And in the sermon, what he does is he keeps pressing. Why did some humble themselves 
and others didn't. He just keeps lovingly pressing the point. And if you keep asking the questions of why, why are you a Christian and someone's not? Why are you a Christian? Are you smarter? Are you more capable, more loving, better family? No, I just, I just opened up my heart. Well, why did you open up your heart? I just received the grace. Well, why did you receive the grace? I just saw the truth of the gospel. Well, why did you see the truth of the gospel? And when you, now listen, listen. When you get down to it, either you're saved because you're just a little bit better, just a little bit, just a little bit better than everybody else, just a little bit. And you won't publicly say that, but you'll certainly think it privately, will you not? I'm saved because I'm just a little bit smarter than that person. I'm saved because I'm just a little bit more in tune with God than that person. So you, you're, you're either going to say, I'm, I'm saved because I'm just a little bit better, or, or because God in his loving sovereignty chose you and he opened up your heart to receive him. Listen, friend, it's either one or the other. It's either one or the other. It's either because you're just a little bit better than everybody else, and that's the reason why you're a Christian and others aren't, I mean, have you ever thought about this before? Some of you have siblings and, and some of your siblings are not Christians and you wonder why. You go to bed wondering, why, why am I a Christian and they're not? We were raised in the same home. What in the world is going on here? It's either, so you're either gonna say, it's because I'm just a little bit more capable. I'm just a little bit more intelligent. I'm just a little bit more in tune with God. Or you're gonna say, it's because God in his mercy, God in his sovereignty, has opened up my heart to the truth of the gospel. It's, it is one or the other. It's either because you're just a little bit better or because God in his sovereignty chose and called you to receive his grace. And some of you will hear that and you'll think, well, that's just Paul. That's just Paul being Paul. And Paul got it wrong. Paul always gets a bad rap. Anytime you get into these discussions, well, okay, you don't like Paul, fine, let's go to Jesus. Do you like Jesus? <laughs> Jesus, by the way, I'm sorry, I get a little, um, I guess I'll use the word snarky. When I'm sick, I get a little short. Um, you, you don't like Paul, but do you like Jesus? Okay, well, listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 6 in the Bread of Life discourse. Jesus said, I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father, now note it, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. No one, no one, can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So it's not just Paul. It's Jesus who affirms it. But so does Luke. In Acts chapter 13, when uh, Paul's preaching in Pisidian Antioch, he's preaching the gospel, Luke writes this. He says, when the Gentiles heard this message of the gospel, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Appointed. Now ask yourself this question. Okay, so we're talking about the doctrine of election, but why is Paul talking about the doctrine of election? 
Why is he pressing that here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? Is it because he sought out to write about the doctrine of election? No, it's not that at all. So if it's not that, then what is it? Here's the reason why. It's because they had broken up into factions and they were boasting in their leader's wisdom. And he's saying, are you foolish? Are you this foolish? You can't boast in human leaders. You can't break up into factions. It's the wisdom of God. It's his wisdom, his great grand design to bring you into salvation. That should be your only boast. It's not, it's get over these human leaders. Stop thinking your human leader has it all right and he's the really wise one. Stop breaking up into parties about these things. Look again at verse 30. And because of him, because of him, because of God, you're in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom, the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul says, it's because of God that you're in Christ. Not your wisdom. Not your works righteousness. Not because of your family pedigree. Not because of your religious effort. Uh, not, but simply because long ago, long ago, before the foundations of the earth, the Lord called you. And through the cross of Christ, he has revealed his love for you. And when you believed in him, he forgave you of all of your sin. And more than that, more than that, because you need more than just forgiveness. Forgiveness is just a blank slate. You need positive righteousness. He's given you his righteousness to you. And what that does, now listen, Christian friend, when you get that, what it does, when you see what, well, this is what, this is the wisdom of God. He's done all of these things. You know what it does? It leaves no room for boasting. In yourself, or in any human leader. It leaves no room for boasting. You have no reason for factions around some particular leader's wisdom, and you have every reason, every reason to rejoice in the Lord's sovereign grace. Amen? It's amazing. The message of the gospel is amazing. And when you truly understand it at a heart level, um, what it will do is it'll do three things for you, and I'll close with these. When you truly understand the gospel at a heart level, here's what it'll do. The first one, it'll fill you with wonder. When you really understand the message of the gospel, that God saves you not on the basis of any human merit, but simply because of his sovereign choice, that'll leave you in wonder. The Lord's love is unconditional. And that's good news because you don't want to love that's based on conditions. You don't want a love that's based on conditions. Think about it. Um, if you have a wife, well, let me say it like this. If your wife ever asks you, honey, do you love me? First of all, if you're a young guy who's engaged, that's a trap. <laughs> Normally this happens in the bathroom, so put the toothbrush in really quickly and just start brushing your teeth. But if your wife ever asks you, honey, do you love me? And you say, yeah, honey, of course. Of course I love you. And then she will say, why? Why? Why do you love me? And if you were to say, well, because you're prettier than other women. Because you're smarter than other women. Because you're more loving than other women. Because you meet my needs better than other women. Don't say that one. 
you say that one, you're in the doghouse. If you say, because you're more serviceable to me. Hey, I'm just throwing out options. I'm not saying I say these things. But if you say these things, she's going to be upset. And rightly so. Why? Because nobody wants that type of love. Nobody wants that type of love. Nobody wants love that says, I love you because you're this or because you're that or because you're this thing over that thing. Because that's not loving you for you. That's a conditional love. That's love for what you're getting. And nobody, nobody wants to be loved for what you're giving to somebody else because then you know they're not really loving you for you. They're loving you for what you're giving them. You're not, loving, you're not being loved for who you really are. You're not being loved unconditionally. You're not being loved permanently. What you want to say to your wife in those instances is, I love you just because I love you. I love you just because I love you. Now, if, God's, if God were to say to you, I love you because you were humbler than others. I love you because you're smarter than others. I love you because you obey. I love you because you're better than others. Then he doesn't love you at all. He doesn't love you at all, and you don't want that type of love. You don't want that type of love, because, and then it's based on conditions. Now listen, if you don't believe, if you don't believe that the Lord saves you by his sheer grace, then you don't actually know his love. You don't actually know his love. And you haven't experienced his love in the full measure. The message of the gospel is, this is a love that has been put on you for you. For you. It's a love that has been given to you, put on you, for you. He doesn't love you because you're wiser. He doesn't love you because you're better. He doesn't love you because you're more gracious. He doesn't love you because you're religiously better than others. Well, then why? Is it just arbitrary? Well, it is something of a mystery. But we're given a clue here. We know that he tends to choose the weak. Look at verse 27. It says it right there. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So God tends to choose those who in and of themselves, they admit that they're spiritually bankrupt. In and of themselves, they know that they have nothing to offer. And he tends to choose those people because he knows that he can show the watching world that he's a gracious God. He is a completely gracious God who loves us for ourselves. He's a God who doesn't use us, but is for us and is full of grace. You see, when you really understand the message of the gospel, when you really slow down and you think through, well, why am I a Christian? Is it because I'm better than other people? And automatically, I hope you would say, no, it's not because I'm better than other people. If, if you are contemplating, it's because you're better than other people. Come and talk to me afterwards. <laughs> or just go talk to your spouse. Um, it's not because you're better. But when you, see, when you understand the message of the gospel, what it will do is it will fill you with wonder. It'll fill you with one. You'll be like, this is amazing. I, I don't fully understand it. And yet what I do understand, it's the most amazing message ever. Here's the second thing. When you really understand the message of the gospel, it'll provide lasting and genuine humility. Lasting 
and genuine humility. If you really know at a heart level that you're not saved based upon your goodness or your ability or your capability, what it does is it genuinely produces a humility about you. And what that does, when somebody criticizes you for not being all that Christian-like, for when you blow it and you make a mistake, you'll, you won't respond in anger. You'll be freed from responding in anger and responding in defensiveness. Why? Because you really are saved, not based on your goodness. And your relationship with the Lord really isn't rooted in your goodness. It's really rooted in the Lord's grace to you. Why will you be able not to get defensive? Why will you be able not to lose your cool when your spouse points out your shortcomings? Why will you be able to repent? Because your relationship with the Lord really is rooted in your goodness, uh, is really rooted in his goodness and his grace. You can act, what it will do over time, you can actually be as humble as you try to pretend to be on Sunday mornings. Really, honestly. You will really become as humble as you try to become on Sunday morning. It means as a Christian, you can freely admit your failures and it won't crush you. If you really know that I'm actually saved by grace, when you fail, you can admit it without it crushing you because your relationship with the Lord isn't based on your goodness. You know that the Lord's love isn't conditional. Now listen, and when you get a community of people who are marked by humility rather than hubris, you have the ingredients for a healthy and unified church, which is why Paul is grounding all of their, their in, uh, infighting back to the gospel. He's saying, you gotta go back to, the Bible, back to the gospel. All of this fighting, all of this factions, it's because you don't understand the gospel. If you really understand the gospel, you're gonna be a, a people who are marked by humility, not hubris. And you'll have the ingredients for a healthy and unified church. So when you really understand the message of the gospel, it'll fill you with wonder, the Lord's love set upon you unconditionally. Second, it'll provide you lasting and genuine humility. Over time, you'll become the person you always pretend to be on Sunday morning. And then lastly, it'll propel you out into the world with hope. It will propel you out into the world to engage Jesus's mission with hope, not despair. Why? Well, because anybody, regardless of their background, regardless of their um, socioeconomic conditions, regardless of their education, their family pedigree, how irreligious they are, as you simply communicate the message of the gospel, some of them have been appointed to eternal life. Some of them will respond. Paul says right here, he says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, which means every, each and every time in our lives, in, in all of our lives, there are people who we rub shoulders with and we don't know them. We don't know, we don't know that they're called, but the Lord knows that they're called. And it's our job, simply communicate the, the truth of the gospel. And some will reject it. Some will be scandalized by it. Others will say it's stupid. But to those who are called, Christ, the power of God. And the wisdom of God. You, you know what that means? It actually means you can go out into the world and say, yes, I know. I know some people will reject the message of the gospel. But there are also others who the Lord has called. Just like me. Just like you. And when they hear the message of the gospel, through my lips, with my, all, of my, uh, all of our imperfections, but when they hear the message of the gospel through my lips, they will actually hear the voice of Christ. And the Lord will pierce their hearts and open their, mind, their minds and they'll come to saving faith. That's amazing. 
So it'll propel you out into the world with genuine hopefulness. That's just good news. Amen? Let's stand. We'll pray and then we'll sing. Father, we are so thankful that you have chosen us in Christ Jesus. That the truth of the gospel has been revealed to us. That our eyes have been opened by you. That your love has been set upon us. And Father, we do pray that these realities would take deep root in our heart and our souls so that we're better able to represent you and your grace to a fallen world. And Father, just as the message of the gospel is gracious, we pray as your people that we would keep it gracious, that we would extend it freely and humbly to as many people as possible, Lord. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.